John chapter 10, verses 11 through 21. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand. He's not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep, which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. A division occurred again among the Jews because of these words. Many of them were saying, He has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to him? Others were saying, These are not the sayings of one demon-possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your glorious truth, for the opportunity that we have to feast upon it this morning. Holy Spirit, please teach us through Your Holy Word. Instruct us. Make us even more wise and discerning we might be able to identify the genuine from the imposter when it comes to shepherds. Even, Lord, in a grander thought, may You cause us to reflect upon how Jesus is our Good Shepherd. May He be exalted. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin this morning where we left off last time I was with you um, when we looked through the first ten verses of John chapter 10 by reading a quick excerpt from Ezekiel chapter 34. If you want to turn there quickly, you can. quick excerpt from Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel the prophet was told to prophesy against the false shepherds of Israel. And their true identity is exposed by their behavior and by their attitude. Their self-centeredness and their lack of care for God's sheep is uncovered through the prophet Ezekiel. This is what the Lord says in Ezekiel 34, starting in verse 3. Here He is uncovering the hypocrisy of these false shepherds. You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly you have not strengthened. The diseased you have not healed. The broken you have not bound up. The scattered you have not brought back. Nor have you sought for the lost. But with force and with severity you have dominated them. They were scattered for lack of a shepherd. And they became food for every beast of the field and were scattered. My flock wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill. My flock was scattered over all the surface of the earth. And there was no one to search or seek for them. So God in the remaining verses announces His opposition against these supposed shepherds. And God Himself promises deliverance for His sheep from the hands of these unshepherdly Shepherds. God Himself would do what these shepherds failed to do. He would search for His sheep and seek them out. He would care for and deliver them. He would bring them home from the countries to which they had been scattered. He would feed them in a good pasture and provide them rest and security. He says, I will seek the lost, bring back the scattered, bind up the broken, and strengthen the sick. And meanwhile, He says, for all of you, the fat and strong, I'm going to bring judgment Upon you. As is often the case, though, what we read here in Ezekiel's prophecy has a sort of double fulfillment. There is, this is not uncommon to find immediate fulfillments of prophecies in the Old Testament, and then yet we might might call them pre fulfillments because there's an even grander and larger comprehensive fulfillment that is pictured for some time yet still in the future. 
This passage is no exception. And as you continue to read through the passages, I noted at the very end of the sermon last time, in verses 22 through 24, if you skip down to those verses, for we who live after the first coming of Jesus Christ, we can not help but think of Jesus as we read these words. God, God declares, Therefore, I will deliver my flock, and they will no longer be a prey, and I will judge between one sheep and another. Then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. He will feed them himself and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. The text provokes the question, who is this one shepherd, referred to as God's servant David, who would care for and provide for and deliver God's people, and would be called a prince among God's people. And if you continue reading in Ezekiel 37, verse 24, he's further explained to be, this one shepherd is explained to be king among God's people. I think John 10, verses 11 through 21, is uniquely fitted to answer that very question. Who is this one shepherd? You see, with this rich historical theological background from Israel's history in mind, Let's consider the rest of Jesus' discourse on this occasion in John chapter 10. Jesus has just announced that these supposed shepherds of Israel in his own day, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, were even blind to their own blindness. They weren't even aware of their own condition. If again, you look at John chapter 9, where after having healed the man born blind, what we find out is it's really the Pharisees who are blind spiritually and in need of sight. But they're blind to their own blindness. And so then Jesus continues to call out this very situation, depicting false shepherds as being thieves and strangers and hirelings here in John chapter 10. Jesus' audience might be wondering by this point, how do we distinguish between the genuine and the true? How do we know the difference between the imposter and the genuine shepherd? And so I believe this text does provide us with several marks of a shepherd. What does a, what does a shepherd engage in? What kind of priorities does a shepherd have? Who is the genuine shepherd? But while it speaks to the identification of those who are genuinely God-ordained leaders for God's flock in general, it functions in an even more important way. It declares to us the identity of God's servant David, the one shepherd who would care for and deliver God's people and be prince and king among God's people. What was implied in Jesus' figurative language in the first five verses of this chapter in John 10, Jesus now makes very plain. Look at it in verse 11. I am the good shepherd. Look at verse 14. I am the good shepherd. The Old Testament expectation, the promise of a shepherd who would deliver God's people is found in none other than Jesus Christ Himself. For he is the chief, the supreme, the ultimate, the good shepherd. So as we look at verses 11 through 21 this morning, I'd like to point out three more marks of a shepherd. We looked at four last time. I'd, look, I'd like to look at three more. And if you missed it last time, you can find it on our website, certain sermon audio. I want you to note with me how Jesus perfectly fulfills the need of God's sheep to have a shepherd. Three more marks this morning. The fifth one that we'll look at is this. That the true shepherd calls, knows, and cares for his sheep. The fifth mark of a genuine shepherd is that a true shepherd calls, he knows, and he cares for his sheep. The good shepherd is genuinely concerned for his sheep. You see, a shepherd exercises ownership over his sheep. And in the metaphor that Jesus sets up, he's already mentioned the thief and robber. We looked at this last time. And how the thief and robber doesn't go through the door into the sheepfold, but climbs up over the side. He comes in only to steal and kill and destroy. Jesus is also referred to the stranger who comes into the sheep and starts to speak to them, but none of the sheep listen to him because he's a stranger and they don't know his voice. Each of those metaphors are utilized to provide a contrast between what a real shepherd does. A real shepherd has no need to come up over the side. He comes through the door. He's warmly welcomed by the doorkeeper. And he comes in among his sheep and he calls to them. They listen to the shepherd's voice because they're his sheep. 
and they know their shepherd's voice. We've already looked at these two varieties of non-shepherds, the thief and the stranger. Now Jesus adds a third image to this. Look at verse 12. It says, He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep. So here we have a hireling who is introduced to us. The word happens only a couple of other times in the New Testament. One happens in Mark 1, verse 20, when James and John leave their father because Jesus calls them to follow Him, and they leave their father and His hired servants behind. It also happens in Luke 15, the famous parable of the prodigal son. When the prodigal out in has wasted his inheritance, remember this? And he's trying to even scrap together some slop from the pigs. And in that moment, he thinks about his father's house. And he says to himself, even the hired servants in my father's house have it better than me. And he intends to come back to his father and tell to him, make me as just one of your hired hands. Make me a hireling in your house. The word is used to describe someone who has been hired to perform a particular service or a particular task. Jesus identifies this hireling. And after he says this hired man, he makes it emphatic here. He says he's not the shepherd. He's a hireling. He's not the shepherd. And therefore, he's also not the owner of the sheep. He's paid a wage for a particular task, to watch the sheep. And the function of this metaphor is to examine this man's level of commitment. And what is it that puts commitment to the test? Hardship. Difficulty. Danger. As soon as the wolf comes, what does the hireling do, Jesus says? He runs. He runs. He flees. He leaves the sheep. And the wolf seizes the sheep and scatters the sheep. Why? Because the hireling is more concerned about his own skin than he is about the sheep. He doesn't have anything personally invested. So when adversity comes, he's out of there. Now, by way of contrast, Jesus is now presenting himself as the good shepherd. Look at verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And then verse 12, he was a hired hand and not a shepherd who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. Jesus makes very plain what he is trying to say through the extended metaphor he gives in verses 1 through 5. Remember verse 6, it says, This figure of speech Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what those things were which he was saying to them. So now Jesus just says it very plainly. When I'm talking about the shepherd here, I'm talking about myself. I am the good shepherd. He says it twice, verse 11 and verse 14. He is the good shepherd. And how is the good shepherd identified? Jesus says right off the bat, verse 11, I'm the good shepherd. How do you know the good shepherd? Because of this, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He is personally invested in the fullest sense of the word. The immediate difference between the shepherd and the hired hand is seen in the good shepherd's willingness to put his own life on the line for the sake of his sheep. Well, every conflict might not actually require a shepherd's life. A genuine shepherd is willing to put himself into danger to secure the safety of his sheep. He'll protect his sheep or he'll die trying. Remember the genuine uh, motive of the mother. Remember back in Solomon's day when there was two mothers disputing over whose baby this was? Do you remember this? It's an interesting placement of that little uh, account comes right after God has promised to give Solomon what he asked for, and that was wisdom. Remember, and the Lord says, because you've asked for this and not something else, you'll get wisdom and everything else besides. And right after that, we have the scenario where Solomon's wisdom is kind of put to the test. There's two women who had babies. One of them was stillborn. And then all of a sudden there's a dispute over whose baby is the one who's living and who's the baby, whose baby passed away. And so Solomon ends up saying to both the mothers, well, okay, well, this is what we'll do. We'll just take the baby and cut it in half. We'll give half to each of you. There you go. One of the mothers says, oh, sounds like a good plan. And the other one says, no, she can have the baby. What does Solomon say? That's the mom. The mom who would rather part with the baby that the baby's life might be saved than see the baby slaughtered before her own eyes. You see, this is how a shepherd behaves as well. 
He cares about the welfare of others. That's the true, genuine good shepherd. That's what a shepherd does. He owns and cares for his sheep. And he won't leave them in the hour of their distress. When the wolf comes, he doesn't start running away. Rather than running from danger, the shepherd confronts it. And Jesus, in the ultimate sense, boldly confronted it, even coming to lay down His life for the sheep. We'll talk about more of that, of that in a moment. But notice how massive a contrast this is from the hireling. Jesus came not to merely risk His life. Jesus came to lay down His life. When Jesus came, it was a foregone conclusion that He would die. He came to die. Perhaps you've heard the riddle before. In a bacon and egg breakfast, what's the difference between the chicken and the pig? Have you heard this one before? Well, the chicken is involved, but the pig is totally committed. Right? We see the difference in commitment level really, really quick. In verse 14, Jesus further identifies Himself as the shepherd by saying, I know My own. I know My own. Jesus is intimately acquainted with His sheep. He knows them inside and out. He knows them better than they know themselves. He knows what's best for them. A vivid contrast is seen between this and the statement that false professors will hear on the Day of Judgment when Jesus says, Depart from Me, for I never knew you. Numbers 16.5 and 2 Timothy 2.19 make plain that the Lord knows those who are His. Jesus says, I know my sheep. And not only that, but via the miracle of the incarnation, Jesus became a man and therefore experienced what it is like to be a man. Your God, the eternal Son, takes on flesh and dwells among us. And due to God's marvelous plan of redemption, Jesus Christ, the God-man, the one mediator between God and man, breathed our air and walked our sod. He knows what it's like to be a man. Jesus, the Good Shepherd, knows us. And He knows those whom are His own. We don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all ways that we are yet without sin. Hebrews 4.15 Remember verse 3. Look at it. In the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name. He calls his own sheep by name. They hear his voice and they follow him. Certainly the one and only God who we hear created the stars in the heavens and leads forth their host by number and calls them, we're told, each by name. And because of his power, they remain and exist. This same awesome, powerful God certainly knows whom His own dear sheep are. He knows their names. He knows their frame. He knows their situation. He knows everything about them. The genuine shepherd knows his sheep. He's not distanced from his sheep. He's among his sheep. He loves his sheep. He's in relationship with his sheep. Look at it. I am the good shepherd. Verse 14. And I know my own, and my own know me. Jesus explains that not only does He know His sheep, but His sheep know Him. This is a marvelous statement. It reminds us of what God did in His marvelous work of creation. He formed Adam from the dust of the ground and he breathed life into him. God then placed Adam in the Garden of Eden, a lush garden paradise, and provided him with a helpmate for it wasn't good for man to be utterly alone. He commanded him to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth. He gave him the responsibility of exercising dominion over the earth and all that is in it. God created man to be relational, mankind to be relational with one another. And even more importantly, with God Himself. And then God placed information about Himself within the very fabric of creation. Look at Romans 1. And then He super adds to that special revelation of Himself preserved for us in the Bible and seen supremely in the gift of Jesus Christ, who as Hebrews 1.3 says it, is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of God's nature. 
God delights not only in knowing us, but in allowing us to know Him. The shepherd loves the sheep. And he wants the sheep to know about Him as well as their shepherd. Jesus explains in verse 4 why the sheep follow their shepherd. It's because they know His voice. They know His voice. And then Jesus tells us that the relationship that we as Jesus' sheep enjoy with Him is akin to the very relationship that God the Son enjoys with God the Father. This is incredible. Look at verse 15. Let's read 14 and 15 together. I am the good shepherd. I know my own. My own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, like I know the Father, and the Father knows me. That's an astounding statement. We who have been created in the image of God, and then have been saved from our sin and recreated, reformed in the perfect image of, of Christ eventually, have been granted eternal life. This is all wrapped up in knowing the only true God as Jesus defined it in John 17.3. J.C. Ryle comments. This is a great comment. The mutual knowledge of Christ and His sheep is like the mutual knowledge of the Father and the Son. A knowledge so high, so deep, so intimate, so ineffable that no words can fully convey it. The full nature of that knowledge which the first and second persons of the Trinity have with each other is something far beyond our understanding. Yet the mutual knowledge and communion of Christ and believers is something so deep and so wonderful that it can only be compared, though still at a vast distance, to that which exists between the Father and the Son. What he's saying is this. How many of us can probe the depths of the relationship that exists within the members of the Trinity, the persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Who can really understand that? Our finite brings. And meanwhile, the relationship that we enjoy with Christ is of such a nature that that's the closest comparison that could be made. It so trumps all other situations, all other comparisons. Jesus says that we who have been adopted and brought into God's uh, flock, had the privilege of knowing Christ in a way similar to the way in which the Father and Son know one another. Good Shepherd cares for every one of His sheep. He's, he's, he knows them. He's in relationship with them. And He cares for them. A hireling does not care himself about the sheep. As we've already noted, the hireling turns tail and runs when the wolf approaches. He's there to earn a few bucks. He's not willing to lay his life on the line for someone else's sheep. He didn't sign up for that. He works for money. He doesn't work out of love. He serves the sheep for what he can get out of it, not because he really cares for the sheep. His lack of concern results in devastation to the sheep when the wolf comes. The wolf snatches and scatters the sheep. The shepherd cannot stand by, meanwhile, while his sheep are torn apart. He sees his role as important to their protection and care. He won't merely lead them to good pastures and then desert them in their moment of direst need. He'll defend them, especially for those who are in the greatest need. It's interesting to note how many times in the Old Testament the prophets speak out against Israel, its leadership, because they fail to take care of the weakest in society. Their neglect of widows and orphans, their abuse of those who don't have power, is almost a surefire way to see judgment coming from the Lord and punishment. You see, a true shepherd demonstrates compassion towards his sheep. He protects them with everything he has. The good shepherd will leave the 99 sheep and go find the one. Because he cares about each and every one of his sheep. Any of you as parents, you have your first child and you're, let's say now you're about to have your second and you're wondering, am I going to love the second child like I love the first one? Have you already had that thought? Isn't it incredible to find out that you, no matter how many children you have, you have full love for each and every one of them, don't you? It doesn't lessen the love you have for any one of them. You don't split up the quality of your love between your children. Your children get every ounce of the love that you have. 
So it is with our Heavenly Father. He cares about each and every one of His sheep. Yes, He is bringing together a people, a bride for Christ, a vast multitude that no one can count, of every tribe, tongue, and nation. But when we think about that corporate reality, don't, also, don't miss the fact that He cares individually for each one of those individuals in His flock as well. He loves each one. He cares for each one. He knows them by name. Then Jesus indicates something interesting here about this flock. The flock that He's bringing together is broader than the Jews may have expected. Look what He says, verse 16, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear My voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. A couple things to note here. First of all, I have other sheep. Interesting phrase here. Jesus says, I have other sheep that aren't part of this fold. I'm going to bring them. We'll have one flock, one shepherd. I have them. He already has them. He merely needs to call them and gather them in. Sounds very much like the doctrine of election here. Acts 13.48 says this, As many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Acts 18.10, Paul is told by the Lord, I have many people in this city. Speaking about the city of Corinth. Do ministry there, he says to him. Or 2 Timothy 2.10, where Paul explains, For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal glory. I have other sheep. An incredible statement this is. Who are these other sheep from a different fold? He says, not of this fold. Who is he referring to here? Well, who is the this fold he's talking to? He's talking to a Jewish audience here. He's saying, I have sheep from another fold. And they're going to be gathered together into one flock. I have people that I'm saving, not only from the Jewish people, but from the Gentiles as well. God's plan is that in Christ, the one shepherd, one flock would be gathered a couple of wonderful passages in the New Testament where Paul speaks to this reality. This is an intensely um, big concern for Paul. We even see it in kind of priority of ministry as he goes around even raising a Jerusalem relief offering. Why does he do that among Gentile churches? I think it's for this specific purpose. He wants to have a, a tangible demonstration of the unity that has been found in Christ. The Gentiles and Jews have been brought together. He says this in Ephesians 2. Kind of in verses 11 through 22, he describes there the way in which those who were formerly far off, who is he speaking to there? The Gentiles, non-Jewish people, who were separate from Christ, who were strangers of the covenants of promise, were brought near by the blood of Christ. He goes on to say, Christ is our peace, which made the, the two groups one. He broke down the wall of division between Jews and Gentiles. Through Jesus, we both have our access in the Spirit to the Father. Galatians 3.28 says it really succinctly, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. We're quite a diverse group, aren't we? <laughs> On any Sunday morning, if we were to take a poll of our hobbies and interests, we'd probably find a, a slew of different ones, right? There might be all sorts of different personalities present in this room. Different propensities, different talents, different abilities. As a matter of fact, if you start thinking about all the differences, you might start asking the question, why are we even here in the same room together? You know? Why is this ragtag group of rebels all together? I mean, what, what is with these people? You got the very point of the gospel. There is one thing we share in common which trumps all distinctions. And that's why in, in, in you know the different ministry have their different focuses and all the rest, but my biggest concern is that we don't make a distinction where we shouldn't. The place where we find unity is in Christ. We who have been saved by the sheer grace of God, we recognize we're not our own. We were bought with a price. We've been given the privilege of being, becoming children of God and granted the opportunity to proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. This is what unites us. What unites us now and in eternity We've been granted peace with God through the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He who came as King of the Jews is King of kings and Lord of lords, both of Jews and Gentiles. 
He not only provided salvation for the Jews, but He provided salvation for all who would call upon His name. In, in Him is life. And He as our Good Shepherd came to give life. As John 10.10 10 said it, give it abundantly. What unites us is a common Savior, a common Lord, the one and only true God. And now we await the return of our glorious King. We await the final judgment. We await the setting of all things right and the establishment of the new heavens and new earth. This unites us as Christians. It's our common love for Christ. It's the expectation of His return. It's a holy anticipation. This is what we're longing for. This is what we crave. This is what we desire. And in the meantime, we will cooperate together as different as we might be from one another, we'll cooperate together to advance this one cause, this supreme reason for which we exist. Give glory to our great God. And in particular, to do that which we won't have the privilege of doing in the life to come. And that is proclaiming the Gospel to those who are lost still, to those who are perishing, to those who are in darkness. So we'll pray alongside of all of this together, asking that God would bring more lost sinners to repentance and faith in Christ all for God's glory and renown. Sixth mark of a genuine shepherd. The good shepherd sacrifices himself for his sheep. The good shepherd sacrifices himself for the sheep. We've already commented on this, but I want to just kind of draw it out here a little bit. There's at least three things I think we can see here in this text that describes the sort of sacrifice that a good shepherd is involved in. The good shepherd gives of his life that his sheep might live. First thing I would mention is this. The sacrifice is voluntary. It's voluntary. Jesus says a couple times here, I lay down my own, and it says life, the word is suke in Greek, soul. I lay down my soul. I lay down my life. This forms a contrast with the hired hand, as we've already mentioned. The good shepherd is marked by willingness to give of himself for the betterment of the sheep. Or even better said, to give himself for the betterment of the sheep. He isn't under any obligation to sacrifice himself, right? He owns the sheep. He can do with the sheep as he pleases. His action is voluntary. He values the sheep. He'll do whatever it takes to protect them from harm or to provide for their benefit. Now, what's unique about Jesus as the Good Shepherd is that because death is really, remember, just the consequence of sin, right? The wages of sin is death. And Jesus never sinned. And He was preserved from any fallen condition in His incarnation. So, Jesus alone can say what Jesus says here in verse 18. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own initiative. And I have the authority to lay it down. Nobody else can say that. For all the rest of us, death is a consequence for sin. It's demanded of us. But since death wasn't required of Jesus due to to the fact that He was sinless, Jesus could offer Himself up willingly, voluntarily, as a spotless, perfect, sinless sacrifice. Jesus didn't die through weakness. He didn't die because He deserved to die. He gave up His life. No one could take it from Him. As I said, it wasn't the nails that kept Jesus on the cross. It was His love to God the Father and His love to a people that He came to redeem. Those nails didn't hold Him there. Any more than those soldiers could force Him to a trial. Any more than His submission to a faulty and ridiculous ruling. All of these things happened because they were in accordance with God the Father's will. And Jesus submitted Himself perfectly to that will for their redemption of a people for God's own possession. Jesus did this in obedience to God the Father. He says in verse 18, this command I have from my Father. I'm doing what my Father has told me to do. What a contrast, isn't it, from Adam and Eve and what is then indicative of all of us in our fallen condition. Romans 5.19, it says, as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Adam's fall condemned us all. Even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous through Jesus' obedience, through Jesus' victory. Jesus was victorious where Adam failed. 
Jesus is victorious where all of us fail. There's a voluntary sacrifice. Another thing we can mention, there was a purposeful sacrifice. It had purpose. It had direction. It had meaning. Jesus gives us further insight into his redemptive work. He says, I lay down my soul, listen, for the sheep. I lay down my soul for the sheep. I lay down my life for the sheep. Remember, he also indicated that there were other sheep not of this fold that he also must bring. So, Jesus' sacrifice is purposeful. What was the purpose? For the sheep. It wasn't just a general provision with the hope that some might take advantage of the treasure that was potentially applicable to someone. Jesus doesn't give us the impression that what prompts his sacrifice is a vague feeling that some people may be helped from his death should they appropriate its saving benefits. The picture is not here, well, I'm doing this so that way perhaps someone might take advantage of an opportunity here. Jesus says, I lay down my life for my sheep. He died as a substitute. He died a substitutionary sacrifice. Jesus died with His sheep in mind. He contemplated the condition of His sheep. He acted to provide redemption and salvation and forgiveness and eternal life to His sheep. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. This sacrifice was substitutionary. He died in the place of His sheep. Sounds quite... Even this phrase, they keep saying, I lay down my souls, literally the word. Interesting, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, when you get to Isaiah 53, listen to verse 11, as a result of the anguish of His soul, speaking of here, the suffering servant, we know as Jesus, He, speaking of God the Father, will see it and be satisfied. By His knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many and He will bear their iniquities. He says, I lay down my soul for my sheep. His sacrifice was purposeful. Arthur Pink says it so well. The Savior gave His life not as a martyr for the truth, not as a moral example of self-sacrifice, but for a people. He died that they might live. By nature, His people are dead in trespasses and sins. And had not the divinely appointed and divinely provided substitute died for them, there had been no spiritual and eternal life. There would be no spiritual or eternal life for them. And then Jesus adds to that, for this very thing, the Father loves me. He tells us that His Father loves Him for this. God the Father delights in the functional submission of His Son. Think about it this way. There are two occasions in Jesus' ministry. We've already looked at them. We've already been through them in our Gospel Harmony. Two occasions in which God the Father verbally from heaven says, You are my beloved Son. In You I am well pleased. He says it at Jesus' baptism and at Jesus' transfiguration. God the Father delights in His Son. And His Son delights in the Father. a substitutionary sacrifice. One other thing I would mention is this. This sacrifice is effectual. It's an effective sacrifice. It's an effectual sacrifice. Jesus says, I lay down my life so that again I might receive it or take it back again. Here's the question. Did Jesus' death accomplish its purpose? Was He successful? Was He victorious? Over and over and over again, the Scriptures say the proof lies in the resurrection. Jesus explains that the laying down of His life would be followed by His taking of it back up again. The resurrection is proof of Christ's victory over Satan, sin, and death. Verse 17b, I lay down my soul so that I might take it up again. Verse 18, I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. We had read this morning 1 Corinthians 15. Isn't that a fantastic passage? Chris was doing a great job reading that for us. It says in verse 19, If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. 
But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Ryle says, His death was not the death of a martyr who sinks at last overwhelmed by enemies, but his death was that of a triumphant conqueror. who knows that even in dying, he wins for himself and his people a kingdom and a crown of glory. We must remember, Jesus laid down his life. For what purpose? That he might take it back up again. And achieving, in achieving victory over death, he gives his sheep eternal life. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. The seventh and final mark that I'd like to mention of a genuine shepherd, is that the faithful shepherd is loved by some and hated by others. The faithful shepherd is loved by some and hated by others. And if that's the case, then the ultimate true good shepherd is no stranger to this experience. He's no stranger to controversy. Look at verse 19. A division occurred again among the Jews because of these words. There's a schism that occurs. A division happens. This is nothing new to Jesus in His ministry. He, everywhere He went, He sparked controversy. The Gospel of Jesus Christ causes the thoughts of many hearts to be revealed. The very thing that was prophesied regarding Jesus in Luke 2, verse 35. Remember this, friends. 2 Corinthians 2, 15 and 16. We are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved. And among those who are perishing, to the, to the one an aroma from death to death, to the other an aroma from life to life. A shepherd evokes divisions. There are people that love him and there will be people that hate him. It said plainly in 1 John, right? If you... If you're one, if you're loved by the world, then you're not. You don't. If you love the world, then you don't love the Father. There's one or the other. You can't have both. You will not please everyone. A shepherd is hated is a hated sight to thieves and robbers. Told in verse 20, many of them said, "He has a demon. He's out of his mind. Why listen to him?" Another of those ad hominem arguments, uh, attacks you know, against the man. The point here is to say this guy is out of. He's insane. He's demon-possessed. And on the basis of this, we don't even have to listen to what he's saying. That's the idea. But it's a groundless accusation, but it's meant to try to discount whatever Jesus said. It has no basis in reality. It's a fabricated lie composed because men loved the darkness and hated the light for fear that their deeds would be exposed. Jesus said that in John 3. This sort of response is a reminder that Jesus is speaking to a mixed crowd. Isn't it? So neat to see that Jesus you know, didn't shy away from exposing wickedness. He denounced false shepherds even when false shepherds were in attendance. <laughs> didn't pull any punch. He didn't beat around the bush on that. There are thieves and strangers and hirelings among God's flock. You know what? Some of them were present there when Jesus said it. And so it is still today. There can be wolves in sheep's clothing. Jesus' words serve as a warning to any of those such people. Those who mean ill against the sheep would much rather deal with an absentee shepherd or one who's sleeping or one who can be bribed or one who can be intimidated. Much rather deal with that sort of shepherd. Really a non-shepherd. A shepherd who stands firm in the truth and protects the flock is sure to meet opposition in this world. Remember, all who desire to live godly will suffer persecution. 2 Timothy 3.12 You can just say it this way. If a shepherd's being faithful, he'll, he'll suffer persecution. There will be hardship. While a shepherd is a hateful sight to the thieves and robbers and strangers and hirelings, the shepherd is a delightful sight to the sheep. Others said, these are not the words of one being demon-possessed. No demon is able to open blind eyes, can he? There were other people there that were connecting the dots. This guy's not a demon-possessed man. He doesn't speak anything like people who are demon-possessed do. He wasn't out of his mind. And no demon had ever been known to heal a man born blind from his blindness and give him sight. 
or this very argument that that man who was healed made before the religious leaders who were trying to denounce what Jesus had done. We could say this at least this far, that that response is at least fair. I mean, at least he's saying, this guy's not demon-possessed. Can anyone else do this sort of thing? Can a demon-possessed man do this sort of thing? I mean, it's fair as far as it goes. At least they're not promoting a lie here. But it doesn't go far enough, obviously. What Jesus describes to us in this passage is absolutely incredible. There's no more comforting thought than to think of Jesus as the good shepherd who comes to us, calls us by name, comforts us, leads us into freedom, provides for our need, guides and directs us both now and the life to come. You know the reason why? Psalm 23 and John 10 are among the most beloved passages of Scripture. Because if you know God, if you know Jesus as your good shepherd, there is tremendous comfort that's found in these passages. The sheep listen to the shepherd. They know him. They recognize his voice. They follow him. They delight themselves in his leadership and guidance. They love him. A genuine shepherd will be hated by some, but he'll be loved by others. We've noted that God never lets go of his ultimate status as owner and shepherd of the sheep. For example, any pastor is just an under-shepherd. Jesus still maintains his status as the good shepherd, as the ultimate shepherd, the shepherd over everyone. Pastors and laity alike are sheep in the fold uh, in the flock of of Jesus who is our good shepherd this good shepherd will not only bring false shepherds to judgment but he will also care personally for his sheep and sometimes he does that through under shepherds who genuinely do their task correctly in submission to the lord i mentioned psalm 23 and i feel here in closing that how could we not read psalm 23 again and i want to read it in the king james because it is so famously remembered that way. Perhaps most of you could even recite it in the King James. But this is how it reads. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for Thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. There's good reason why that psalm has been so treasured by so many. It pictures the Almighty, Holy God lovingly involved with His people. He not only knows their situation, as obviously He's God, and He's not only able to do something about their situation, obviously, He's God, but He also cares. He cares about them. If the Lord is my shepherd, then surely I can trust Him to take care of me. Wherever life may lead, I can be sure of His provision, of His guidance, of His protection, of His comfort. And note that the psalm doesn't picture a life of ease without any difficulties. It speaks of walking through the valley of the shadow of death. It speaks of Him preparing a table for us in the presence of our enemies. The principle is not that we won't see hardship or encounter opposition or persecution, but that the Lord promises to be with His sheep, to be lovingly involved in their lives. And if the Lord is your shepherd... As is revealed to us in John 10, if Jesus Christ is your good shepherd, then we have nothing to worry through the stresses and difficulties of this life. Goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life. You will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. See, God's role as our shepherd is uniquely seen in God the Son, Jesus Christ. I want to close by just noting a couple of quick contrasts. A couple of quick contrasts. Think about it this way. Here's where the metaphor only goes so far and Jesus completely supersedes and trumps the metaphor. A normal shepherd might die in defense of his sheep, but he certainly wouldn't die on purpose, right? He'd try to protect them from the harm, but he wouldn't just die. He tried to save his own life while he's protecting the sheep, right? He plans to live for his sheep, not die for them, 
But with Jesus, He came to earth and set His face like a flint to go to Jerusalem for the express purpose of laying down His life for His sheep. He came to die that they might live. Typically, the death of the shepherd spelled disaster for the sheep. But the death of the good shepherd, Jesus Christ, meant life for His sheep. And the ordinary shepherd, upon dying, has no authority to take his life back again. But not so with Jesus. Jesus' victory over death was proved in His resurrection from the dead. He died so that He could rise again triumphant over the grave. Man, I've been challenged by this lately. I've been talking with Justin, really challenged by this lately. How often in the Gospel do we stop short of talking about the resurrection? Yes, the cross is important, but Jesus rose again from the dead. Proclaim that from the rooftops. Proclaim His victory. You see, the end result of Christ's life, death, and resurrection is the gathering of one flock around Him, Jews and Gentiles, as under one shepherd. People of every tribe and tongue and nation will stand under the leadership of the one true good shepherd. And even in eternity, we read this in Revelation 7.17, that the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd. And He will guide them to the springs of the water of life. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. We look forward to our homecoming described in 1 Peter 5.4 When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for the revelation that You have granted us in Your Word. Thank You for having explained to us, Jesus, that You are the Good Shepherd. That the suspense presented in Ezekiel is is resolved in You. You are the Good Shepherd whom God the Father has set over His flock. And thank You, Father, for Your marvelous plan to include both Jews and Gentiles in in Your kingdom. Jesus, we know You were under no obligation to lay down Your life. You willingly did so. We thank You for Your death which grants us life and Your resurrection which proves Your victory over death and sin in the grave. It is the first fruits of also our coming resurrection. Lord, help us to sound this triumphant note to all who are around us. Thank You for the hope that comes to us in in the glorious good news of the Gospel. We look forward to Your return, Lord and King Jesus, and all things are set right, and the new heavens and new earth are set up and established. Pray that in the time that You allot, allot us, that we would be found faithful servants of Yours. We love You. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.